Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast and the Finding Genius Foundation. My guest today is Jatna Batra. She's an associate professor, part of the Faculty of Health Biomedical Sciences at Queensland University. And we're going to talk about uh, genetics, oncology, and carcinogenesis, etc. So, Jatna, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm good, Jacob. How are you doing, Richard? Yeah, doing fine. Doing fine. Tell me about your, uh, your research. What are you working on? Richard, my research is focused on genetics and uh, the disease I am mostly dealing with is prostate cancer. I do work on a few other cancers as well, but prostate cancer has been my major interest um, to dissect its genetics. So my laboratory is also um, quite interested in doing uh, molecular genetics. So we have been working as a part of large prostate cancer consortium, which is known as the practical consortium, which is essentially led by ICR London by Professor Ros Eels. And this consortium major workforce has been to undertake the genome-wide association studies to identify the genetic basis of the disease. Um, so why we actually become part of this consortium and I started working with this is that before becoming part of this consortium, we were working single-handedly, try to identify what could be the genetic causes of the disease, um, doing our analysis in simple way in a smaller population set everybody was doing in each different country. Um, just to give you also a quick background what the genome-wide association studies are for, for those people who might not be aware of this is it's analysis of the genetic background using a chip technology where we would put um, the genetic variants which is single nucleotide polymorphisms mostly on a chip-based uh, technology and we look for the differences between patients and healthy individuals. And as I mentioned, in this case, it mostly has been prostate cancer in my research. All cancers are very heterogeneous. That's so, correct. I mean, Absolutely. How, how do you, how do you, I guess there, there would be a cluster of changes that would be associated with prostate cancer, but because cancers are so heterogeneous, how do you know what the real important ones are? Absolutely. Yeah. This analysis mostly has been working with germline variants. Of course, it's a combination of germline and somatic variants. So being working in the field of germline variants, it makes your life a little bit easier because the heterogeneity, although it's still existing, we could dissect it much more easier than the, the somatic mutation and the heterogeneity there, right? Because we're talking about germline in this case. So we, we started all of our work with the germline analysis, uh, but still as the heterogeneity is there, the first step we started taking was only to identify risk-associated variants, so without dissecting anything else, yeah? This was the major task which we have been working for last 10 years, and that led us to the identification of 150 risk variants which are associated with prostate cancer risk. But then as you've mentioned clearly about the heterogeneity, so then we started dissecting it with respect to different um, Gleason scores, um, the genetic variants 
variants which could be associated with the aggressiveness of the disease, with the metastasis of the disease. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when we are working with germline variants, we could not really dissect into the heterogeneity at the tumor microenvironment level. And this is why when I started working in the molecular genetics lab, I started considering the functional role of these genetic variants, which are associated with the risk of prostate cancer. And when we started doing this, the heterogeneity problem became even more important and pronounced. And this is why it's taking us such a long time to really dissect the function of these variants one by one, because we want to look at it from various different angles, not just including into the um, local tumor, but also the tumor microenvironment and how it plays role in leading to heterogeneity and also in different situations, like, for example, with respect to immune response as well. So this has been a very interesting journey from finding the uh, cancer risk-associated genetic variants, starting from there to also identifying how they actually cause or lead to cancer. And this made us uh, make lots of progress in the field, as I mentioned already, that we have identified uh, more than 150 genetic variants associated with prostate cancer risk. And, you know, individually, they do not impart a high risk to the disease. But when you combine them and calculate the polygenic risk score, it has it seems to have a huge importance in also diagnosing the disease. How, how do you know the, um, the progression? Which ones come first? And which ones, you know, are, are lineage-based that come later, you know, as the uh, cancer develops? Uh, that's correct. This, this is, again, a very relevant question, Richard, for the somatic mutations, because we are talking here of germline changes. So these are all, you know, I mean... Once when we published this paper in Nature Genetics, one of the general actually actually news article put it as if a child is crying, yeah, because germline variants are what you're born with, right? And you could find them as soon as a person is born. So these are all predisposing genetic variants at germline, but some of these are also then associated with somatic variants, which is a very difficult task to identify at this stage. But we are we have started dealing with it and doing some additional analysis where we can find how germline and uh, somatic variants could be correlated and whether germline uh, mutations or SNPs could predispose a person to more of a somatic uh, changes. And some of these could be early on and some of these could be later on. So this has been a very interesting journey so far. Well, not, not just germline versus some, you know, somatic cells, but I mean, like if you had a three centimeter tumor and it was roughly spherical, could you get the whole tumor? Could you very carefully slice it and then spatially look at the mutations and see how they progress, let's say from the center out to the edges and create a map, a visual like 3D map of a given tumor and what the heterogeneity looks like? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is an interesting task, and this is why single cell sequencing is becoming so important, right? That really exists, yeah. We, for prostate cancer, we currently do 12 core biopsies, which does not look like sufficient. And this is why it's very important to really understand the heterogeneity. And I absolutely agree to you um, that it's, it's not possible to get as much as tissue at this stage. And this is why some better 
biomarkers, which actually is another part of my research, is to look into um, biomarkers in the blood and plasma level. So especially in the plasma level where you have the secretory tumor cells, which are coming into the plasma, and you could measure those. And mutations in those could be indicator of the aggressive disease as well, because more aggressive the disease, especially in prostate cancer, when the architecture is breaking down, cells are released into the cell-free medium. And this is how it enters into the blood system or become a part of cell-free component of the blood. And this is what we are also quite interested in looking at the uh, different components, for example, microRNAs in in the plasma, which could be used as the diagnosis of prostate cancer also uh you know taking care of the heterogeneity of the disease but has anyone taken a tumor and you know resected it and kept it alive and then hit it with chemo and you know like poked it and prodded it and try to keep it alive for a while and see what happens to it in like Uh, a lab environment before we continue i've been personally funding the finding genius podcast for four and a half years now which has led to 2700 plus interviews of clinicians researchers scientists ceos and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000-plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership, from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. There has been research on these lines. This is what is mostly called as explants, which is very difficult to maintain for a long time, right? Because prostate cancer is a little slow-growing cancer, so it's very interesting. And many researchers have come up with many different methodology to do these sort of things. The one is, for example, growing them as an organoids. And this is what we have also been working on, where you actually grow them in special media. So they do maintain their 3D architecture. And then this is where then they grow as a as a little prostate organoids. And we could then treat them with different, different um, agents within our group and within our center. We also then grow them in mice. Um, so it's a tissue taken from the patients, but it's grown in the mice. And this has actually led us to identification. It's, it's just a case of one patient, actually. And this is not directly my research, but happening within the Australian Prostate Cancer Research Center um, at our institute, which is a big center um, uh, included with multi-center and uh, multi-talented researchers who work in the different fields as such. So um, that has actually led us to identification that one of the patient was, when we were progressing, its tumor was leading to actually mutation in the BRCA uh, genes. So it was a BRCA1, BRCA2 positive patient later on after doing several treatments. So we were actually able to change the patient's um, treatment regime based upon what was happening to the tumor during its progression in the mice model, the chunk which we have used from the patient is as such. So these type of technologies such as doing in explants or PDXs are pretty useful sometimes in determining the therapeutics, especially in those patients who are highly resistant to multiple therapies. And this is progressing pretty well at this stage, although a bit slow. So have you been able to longitudinally look at a tumor as it grows and biopsy it periodically to see the change in mutation spread? Exactly. And if so, what's observed? 
Exactly. Yes, this is what we have also done in some cases. So they, after uh, treating with different drugs, it does um, lead to changes in the mutational profile of the tumor and the drugs. So for example, for prostate cancer, we use anti-androgen therapies quite a lot. And then that leads to, say, for example, mutation in androgen receptor itself. And that's what how the resistance comes. And this is what we have been observing. Um, some of the other observation, which has come from other researchers and other groups, for example, Pete Nelson's, Nelson's group also indicates that there could be a multiple clonal origin of the prostate cancer, some of which actually leads to the metastasis. So it's not just focused on one region. And, and this, again, allude back to your analysis or, or your indication of tumor heterogeneity. So tumor might not start from just one origin. It already might start from multiple origin. And this is why there are mutations in different regions. And when you do longitudinal analysis, they start also can behave similar or can behave differently as well. Yeah, because, you know, the, a whole bunch of scientists seem to say that, you know, cancer starts from one cell. But, you know, even in mouse models, if you're able to see it incredibly early, That's or if you deliberately, let's say, seed an area with, with just a few cancer cells, if you could selectively do that, have you observed, you know, tumors really early on and what's noticed there in terms of the mutational profile? It's it's not early on uh, in case of prostate cancer, Richard. It's mostly with the drug treatments when we see changes in the profiles mostly. So when you have been giving, so it's, it's, there are two notions here. One is that multiple origin of the tumor and some of these will only metastasize, not everything. And then the second one, of course, is that uh, after treating with the drugs, further mutation happens, which makes the tumor drug resistant. And this is what we have been observing within the, the models, which has been used with us. Has anyone gotten like volunteers? Let's say they get a high PSA reading, you know, the yeah. prostate-specific antigen. They don't mm-hmm. have any observable tumor. But have any of those people that are in that condition volunteered to be looked at, you know, frequently, let's let's say, I don't know, examined uh, three times a year for a number of years to try to catch that tumor the second it may start and then start sequencing it and looking at it and seeing what could be done. Perhaps then an early onset can be caught. This is also a very interesting question, um, Jacob, because high PSA is quite misleading in this case. And unfortunately, and and this also belongs to the the clinical regime which has been taken for these patients so because prostatectomy has been so common that once you see patients with high PSA level and they undergo biopsy and there is an indication of the tumor patients undergo prostatectomy they, they were used to undergo prostatectomy, at least uh, in Australian uh, system, which is now changing. The change of practice is changing a lot of things. It's changing the outcome for patients, and it's also changing the outcome for researchers as well, the way we study the disease at this stage. Um, so essentially, uh, in I am actually not aware of any of the study where a tumor where the PSA were only horizon and the biopsy was done. And then the uh, large-scale analysis of this type has been done. Although, as I said, that the problem actually with prostate cancer is that in, in the Western world, especially, is that it's over-treated. Um, and this is why a lot of the way we are looking at this tumor is changing. So the problem has not mostly been that we are 
missing those patients as much as we are actually over treating the patients who had the higher PSA level and their tumor was never growing to grow into an aggressive disease, but they were still undergoing prostatectomy. And this is how now the whole system is more changing towards watchful waiting. And, you know, your comment makes a real sense that when patients are actually on watchful waiting, can we not take their tumor samples and look into it for its aggressiveness and for their sequencing? Uh, although this is, as you know, is a very expensive exercise size and most of the time prostate cancer is a disease associated with old age so this has not been a very common practice to start taking the tumor cells and also technology wise it's very difficult as well because when the tumor is very less aggressive it's difficult to grow it in the explant system or ex vivo system or even in mice model as pdxs so that also brings some of the technological um, difficulties as well um, stating that there have been also studies where uh, circulating tumor cells have been also um, cultured and sequenced to identify if there are mutations in, in, in those or the mutation profile is changing. And that seems to correlate pretty well with the disease aggressiveness or the future disease aggressiveness, as you mentioned. So a lot of interesting development have been happening, but not as much as you would see in liquid tumors with respect to at least uh, quickly sequencing and finding what would be the outcome. And this has been difficulties with every solid tumor, I would say. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. What about prostate organoids? Do those exist? And have you tried to seed those or get them to uh, turn cancerous or again, seed them with cancer cells and observe them? Oh, yeah. So we do have some organoids uh, with which we are dealing. So they do become cancer cells as well. Um, it has been, although it's not that easy to establish organoids from every patient, right? It takes time. So some of the patient's um, tumor is much more successful in making organoids while others are not. Um, and once, but once it's made into organoids, it's very easy to bring them back into the tumorous form and you could use these for um, research work. They need to be grown in very special media, which is currently we are using the media, which was developed by Hans clever's lab and that works pretty well and um, you know that that leads to lots of um, great research outcome uh, all the problem is the heterogeneity so when we have organoids for multiple patients it's not going to happen that you get the same outcome but this is what the beauty of using organoids in the research is that what you the outcome you get comes from the heterogeneous group of cells and this is what leads to um, very terrific outcome and sometimes very difficult to match between two patients but it, it does take into account the heterogeneity of the disease to some extent. So is it hard to create a prostate organoid period or do you create healthy ones and then turn them cancerous or do you try to take cancer cells and create organoids from cancer cells? So the organoids are created from the cancer cells, but isolating only cancer cells is probably not the best thing. So this is a tissue taken, which also have stromal cells in it as well. And this is where organoids are made. What I have been aware of that the success rate has been around 10% only. So if you try 100 patient samples of 10, you are able to generate the organoids. And it's easier to make organoids with the different type of diseases. Um, recently, there was a paper published on the neuroendocrine um, disease of prostate cancer, where the formation of organoid was also successful. The previous one has mostly been 
with the less aggressive disease because tumor stays confined to the organ. And this is why making organoids are much easier in comparison to making them spread into different directions. So personally, I'm much more excited about uh, culturing the circulating tumor cells as well, because they also form clusters. So they are not really organoids, but they form clusters and are also quite a good representation of the um, tumor cells secreted into the blood. And this is how they indicate the aggressive disease quite early on. Their numbers are quite low sometimes, but again, that seems to be correlating with the disease aggressiveness. So that seems to be a pretty good future for the cancer research. Well, why not create healthy prostate organoids and then try to seed them with tumor cells and see if they'll take over the, the organoid? Has that been tried? This has been tried and not tried as well. It's very difficult to grow healthy cells, um, essentially, Richard, and they die so quickly because cancer cells have this inherent property of propagating very fast. We have done some of these sort of culture where we have done kind of co-cultures where cancer cells have been co-cultured, say, for example, with fibroblasts, those type of things. And this is where we are also moving towards a bit more towards 3D culture type techniques. Uh, For example, in one of our recent and work which is not yet published we have tried to use the cell driven from the bone so prostate cancer metastasizes to bone um, so what in this case we have done is have taken the bone cells from healthy individuals and tried to co-culture it so we have to put these cells into the metric so then and then we home the cancer cells on top of it so this kind of analysis is quite possible um, but this is not really in the direction of organoids and and cancer cells do transform quite a lot to the others um, like they tend to transform the other cells based upon what um, the interaction levels are and a lot of the studies have also indicated that stroma plays a high role in transforming cancer cells as well. So there has been lots and lots of different way of analyzing these data. I think we still struggle to find the best model. It's probably easier to say, and technology-wise, it's quite challenging to grow healthy cells and trying to convert them into prostate cells. We have a few cell line, epithelial cell lines, but they all have already been transformed so that they can grow and survive. So in my opinion, they already work as a cancerous cell line because you have transformed them already. So there are lots of technological challenges exist in this field and pro- proposing this hypothesis that you could use the healthy um, cells and can convert them into cancerous cells without doing any viral-based transformation that easily. Um, what about profiling the extracellular vesicles given off by prostate cancer cells versus normal prostate cells. Has that been done and what does that reveal if so? Yeah, absolutely. That's also a very, very, very interesting field of analysis of looking at extravesicular component. And that does indicate quite a bit of difference, especially with respect to patients which have got aggressive disease. And not just them, but the component within the extracellular vesicles are quite interesting as well. And as I already mentioned previously that I'm quite interested in microRNAs, um, they are also secreted in extracellular vesicles and uh, also the some of the long non-coding RNAs. And of course, the protein con- content of uh, these are also different between patients uh, versus the healthy individuals. So they, they are leading us in the direction of Um, diagnostics, but nothing as such has been really come up as a real diagnostics with 
where the, the extracellular vesicles are being used because they are, again, technologically slight difficult with respect to other techniques. For example, PSA test, which is a simple blood-based test. So this is where prostate cancer field has advanced much more in finding something which could be easily measured in plasma rather than really digging into the extracellular vesicles. But that gives us lots and lots of important information about the biology of the tumor growth and has been very exciting research. Yeah, if wherever they're secreted, they're secreted. But again, if you understand the EV profile or the cargo that's typical, if there is such a thing for cancer of prostate cells, then that can be part of the liquid biopsy. Absolutely. You look for the EVs plus you know, other markers. Absolutely. This is where I was um, talking about that the microRNA profile in the EV has been a very interesting uh, part of research within the prostate cancer field, especially. And because they are also secreted in urine, that's where it has been analyzed as well. So there have been two thoughts on this, whether you dig into the component of EV and then look into those components specifically in urine and also in the plasma. And this has been quite successful in, and quite replicative in multiple analysis also at the same time, just analyzing from the biomarker perspective, the cell-free system as well, where where essentially you would also get component from the EVs because this is what is secreted in these two components. Um, so I, I, I think it's a very interesting field of research and has been dealt pretty nicely in the prostate cancer field, especially to look into the components within the EVs. Okay, so in terms of the liquid biopsy, what kind of biomarkers or what kind of things are you looking for? Is that established yet uh, to do an effective um, liquid biopsy, in, you know, whether in urine or blood? Um, it, it is in a way or not. So one of the most um, promising one has been in the urine is the PCA3, um, which is a long non-coding RNA essentially, which makes a part of the liquid biopsy for prostate cancer Um However, the problem what I have been saying with any of the liquid biopsy marker, also including microRNA as well, and which is mostly done in plasma and urine both ways, that they are working very well and have really high accuracy for just for detecting cancer. So if you are trying to segregate between a, a patient who will get tumor versus who will not get tumor, so the predictability or probability of predict the risk, all of these markers works pretty well and they are quite reproducible. But problem starts to come when you want to use these markers as a predictor of disease aggressiveness. And as I mentioned previously as well, that's the current problem for prostate cancer that we cannot really distinguish. And even using the PSA test, we cannot predict whether the tumor is going to be aggressive or non-aggressive. And this is where the suggestion of then culturing the tumor and sequencing and looking at the mutational profile also has come up. So that has not been very successful in that area, the liquid biopsy. But stating that, that also is limited by the number of patients which have been analyzed, because as I also mentioned, that 70 to 80 percent of the patient cohort of our collection or anywhere would be non-aggressive uh, disease patients, and it's a slow-growing disease for prostate cancer. So the the analysis has never been done in a very, very large cohort where 
this sort of analysis using liquid biopsy has been performed where a high, high, large number of patient samples have been analyzed or collectively analyzed. And this is why uh, probably we have not been successful and the tumor heterogeneity plays a, a, a huge role here as well. So when we do this sort of analysis, we need to really consider different tumor heterogeneity. And this is where the liquid biopsies um, results need to be uh, identified or interpreted with a lot of cautions and and uh, a much more research is needed in that field. Yeah, but there's got to be, there's not infinite variety. I would think that there's going to be a Pareto and you'll have X number of types and maybe subtypes, but they'll have like a predominance of certain kinds of mutations, you know, above yeah. others. So there must be some way to classify it. Exactly. So I, you know, you gave a very good clue here that they should be classified maybe based upon mutations or molecular classification would be the best. And this is the approach probably we need to take in the future rather than just only looking at the pathology, right? So the pathology and molecular classification if put together, but these sorts of analysis, we are still lagging a bit behind to do this sort of classification and then um, correlating with, with liquid biopsy. And probably, although we are not too far, I mean, we're sequencing more and more patients and probably when we put them together, have a bigger sample cohort, we would be very easily able to classify them on a molecular basis. And, and this would also not just um, solve the problem for prostate cancer, but for many cancers of multiple organ origin. So we can treat them as similar tumor, but when their molecular profile is different, so we start using using this, the therapy or the diagnostics on the basis of the molecular profiling. And this might change the whole uh, clinical practice of the disease, probably a bit far away and a vision, but this is, this is what should happen in the future. I mean, one real good example is the BRCA mutations for prostate cancer. So the, some of the treatments for prostate cancer, for breast cancers, which, which can be used for BRCA mutations are now being implemented for prostate cancer, right? So this has been some of the very interesting uh, way of dealing with tumors on the molecular basis, rather than just on the basis of origin of the organ from where they are coming up. Yeah, what does the heterogeneity look like and the mutations look like in primary tumor versus metastases? Has that been cataloged and observed? Um, in in smaller studies, yes, it has been cataloged, and they they are there are differences certainly. So some of some of the mutations are are much more associated with aggressive disease in comparison to. And the, the metastatic disease seems to have higher number of mutations as well. So this this does tell us that tumor is continuously progressing and changing its behavior. So tumor is certainly smarter than human. But as I said again, that it's probably has not been a very common practice to sequence every patient, at least not in the Australian setup for prostate cancer. While in the U.S., it's much, it's getting much more common to use um, sequencing approach to determine the patient treatment. We have just been embarking here in Australia on this kind of approaches, so we have a lot to find out in this field. Yeah, I think it'll be incredibly important to look at that because. Then, if you're getting a liquid biopsy and it's working, you can actually tell if someone has metastases that are unseen, if you know if they have a certain signature. And again, it shows up. You can't see it visually. You know, there's not enough tumor size to see it. But in the liquid biopsy, it shows up and it shows. Uh oh, there's a you know a liver or a, a brain or whatever metastases. You know, we're showing up again. 
in urine or it's showing up in uh, in blood, but we can't see it, that maybe maybe would help uh, you know early detection of metastases. Absolutely, I completely agree to this. But as you know, we need to have some technology advancement. It is it is incredibly fast at this stage. So there is not um, any doubt that pretty soon we will be at the stage that every patient can be sequenced, yeah, and, and not just sequenced once, but multiple times to see where it's going, and then whether through uh, and through the liquid biopsy kind of procedures we can able to predict the clinical regime of the patients on these bases. So I completely agree with your suggestions, just that we are a little bit lagging in that phase at this stage. What do you think is close in terms of uh, figuring out, you know, what in the next year or two, is there anything you're, any hypotheses that you feel like you're close to uh, getting results on or clarity on? So just going back to uh, my particular research, uh, as I mentioned, that uh, we have been working on germline variants quite a lot. So I was just going to probably give an outcome with respect to the PSA test, right? Uh, which is which is still the most common test, you know, any almost every man at after particular age is recommended to undergo PSA testing. So using the germline variant work, we have identified that there is actually germline variation within the PSA gene as such as well, which is actually one of the coding variant. So it changes the PSA structure as well to some extent and its activity. So germline variants do affect the PSA test. So one of the recent findings coming out of my lab indicates that when we are doing PSA test, we also need to undertake into account the genetic variations into it because and it does bring me back to your comment as well, where um, you did mention about the aggressive disease. So what we are showing by doing multiple assays, including, you know, organoids and in vivo experiments from patients, that this genetic variant actually lower the PSA levels, but leads to the aggressive disease. So exactly in the same line that we were discussing earlier, that these patients will not be diagnosed because their PSA levels are lower, but because of that genetic variation, they will ultimately end up with highly aggressive disease. So this is one of the examples, which is a very solid example that we need to combine multiple and diagnostic methods to actually really segregate patients into different categories. And this is what is almost validated now in our lab. And so we are pretty keen on developing a PSA test, which could be combined with genetics and then can give much better outcome to the patients. And we could follow up them more rigorously, uh, especially those patients which have got this genetic variance and give them a proper treatment and also have a better outcome for them then. I'm very good. So Jetsna, what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? So the best way, of course, is some of the publications. Um, so, yeah, we also have at QT the e-repository of QT uh, as such as well. And most of my work is um, deposited there as well. So it's accessible through that too. But I am pretty keen on publishing most of my work. So it's mostly a lot of work is published and this is where it can be easily found. I'm also pretty happy to share it via emails and other avenues as well. Um, so it's it's not that difficult to find something interesting these days, given that everything is online and open access as well, of which I'm really highly supportive of, of that work in open access way. So this is, this is where I would say. Okay, very good. Well, Jasna, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. 
You're most welcome, Richard. It was lovely talking to you and very interesting questions and discussions out there. And I I enjoyed uh, being part of it. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.